Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. So here, let me give you a little background on what we're looking at this morning is, uh, we're looking at a section in Philippians where Paul is going to say some things that, are, that seem uncharacteristically harsh uh, to us. He's going to refer to some people as dogs and as evildoers and as mutilators of the flesh. And, uh, you know, if I just started talking that way in front of you, you, probably, you might not be back next. That's not a character for Stephen. It feels a little char- out of character for Paul, too, as we were looking at it. But he has good reason to have this kind of conversation with us because there are people who are in the local church who are distorting the message of the gospel and leading people astray. And that uh, what we talked about earlier where there's a tendency, not just in individuals but institutions, to move away from the doctrines of God's grace whereby we're saved and to teach other things, Jesus plus something, uh, that's what they were doing, was coming into the church and say, yeah, Jesus is good, but you need Jesus plus this. And without the plus, then there is no salvation. Jesus isn't enough. You need more than Jesus to be able to be saved. And Paul is saying, you are leading people astray. And now, uh, what the false teaching was, the specific human activity you were supposed to do, most commentators think it was circumcision and uh, people coming in. And that's why Paul would use that idea of mutilation of the flesh as a way of being right with God, saying you have to do this. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus if you're not circumcised. If you're not circumcised, there's no salvation. That's the way you're saved. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. That's a little background for it. And so if you're willing and able, out of respect for God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's very word. He's given it to us because he loves us and every word of it is true. Let's pray and ask God to bless us as we look at it. 
Well, Father, you've given us some pretty powerful words in this passage. And there's so much here, it'd be hard for us to wrap our minds all of it in one sitting. So it's going to take a lifetime. But we pray this morning as we come into this place that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit uh, to at least give us a start or help some of us to continue on this path uh, to help us to chip away at all of the old legalism and the things that we have in our lives that make us think that somehow you accept only the worthy when in fact you accept the, you accept the unworthy who are in Christ. Would you bless us and would you be with us? And Father, I pray for me. I am not justified by what I say this morning. Uh, neither am I kicked out. I'm a flawed and broken person and the only righteousness I have is Christ. And for that I'm grateful. Make me free to talk about wonderful things because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. I came across a Christian blog uh, post a few months back entitled, 10 Questions to Ask Yourself Before You Go to Bed Tonight. 10 Questions to Ask Yourself Before You Go to Bed Tonight. So here are the questions. I'm going to run through them very quickly. Did I begin today in prayer? Have I read my Bible today? Did I give today my best efforts? Did I make someone's life a little better today? Did I take steps towards the dreams I have and God has for my life today? How did I add value to the world around me? Was my attitude ever in the way of me or others having a productive, happy day? Can I put today behind me, go to sleep, and give tomorrow another chance? How can I improve my answers tomorrow night? Am I ending today in prayer? Now, as you read that, how do you feel? <laughs> I'm determined. No, you probably feel defeated and a little bit disgusted and a little bit deflated, maybe guilty. And when people read this, it, it usually doesn't work the way that the people who ask these questions want it to work because it makes us feel further from God. Because it makes it seem like there are all these things we have to do. And if I, if I did all these 10 things, then I would actually feel like God loves me. And it just doesn't work. And, and when we start kind of talking about this, this is the way we approach Christianity is, what are the 10 things? Or maybe just give me five things, even just five things that I could do and make God make me feel like God actually loves me. Because the way that we think about Christianity is, it's about what I do for God and not about what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. So a couple of, uh, two years ago now, when we first moved to the villages, I was meeting with a man who's not a part of our church plant. He's never been a part of it. Uh, but he was in a local church. He heard there's a new church coming to town. He wanted to have breakfast with me. So we went and talked. And in the midst of the conversation, he said this, and I was, I was waiting for this wonderful answer. He said, do you want to know what Christianity is all about? I was like, oh, this is going to be good. This is, this is going to be good. He's got it figured out. He said, it's about good and evil. The same thing that all religions are about, good and evil. They're the good people and the bad people. And as he began to talk about it, I realized for him, Christianity was just a form of civic religion. It's just about being a moral, good person. And that's what all the religions are trying to do is to make you a good, moral person. But he's not the only one who thinks this way. Uh, in the previous church I was in, we had a lady in our church who was, uh, she was 65, she had grown up in the church. She had played music at the church. And uh, she was in a small group with us, and she communicated this. She said, she said, my whole life, 65 years, my whole life I thought that Christianity was about what I did for God. And I'm just now realizing that it's about what God has done for us in Jesus. 65 years growing up in the same church and just not ever heard that, not ever connected. Uh, I had a student years ago, and uh, 
He came out of a sermon one time. I, I didn't preach this, but we came out of a sermon. I happened to see him. He said, that was a great sermon. I felt so awful at the end of it. And I was thinking, well, what's your measure of a good sermon? And, uh, and uh, the reason was, is he had what's, what people have called a, a um, oh, look at my word here, a sincerity covenant, which meant that if he, you know, he goes and listens to the sermon, if he feels really bad about what he's hearing, it's kind of like doing penance. It's kind of like going to a scared straight or something like that. You know, it's like, okay, I hear this and it's awful, it's terrible. And so now I'm going to promise to get my life better. I'm, I'm sincerely going to respond to this. And that's kind of the way he thought about Christianity is it's about the way you respond to this sincerely and make some changes. And then you come back and get beat up again, berated by the pastor next week. And that's kind of what he thought about it. And it's this kind of mindset towards Christianity and towards religion that led Martin Luther at one point to say, love God. I hate God. This is what he wrote. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. In other words, he's saying I was doing everything. But then he went on to write this as well. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. In other words, he was being honest with himself about all the stuff he's supposed to do. He's saying it's not working. So that's when he said, I hated the righteous God. I was angry with God because he felt the rules of all of the laws that he was, he felt the weight of all the rules and laws that he was trying to keep. And he realized, I just can't do it. It doesn't do what people promised it would do. It doesn't change my relationship with God and the sense of being accepted by him. So most people think that the Christian life is really about what we do for God. And Paul is addressing that here in these verses. He's saying it doesn't work. That's not what makes you right with God. These questions, like we read earlier, they sound great. And there is a place for self-reflection sometimes of saying, you know, what, am I, do I really believe this? And how is it affecting my life? But usually when we ask those questions, it's putting us under the sense of you can never come to God until you get everything in your life straight. Go get it straight and then come back. If we have done something or doing religious works, then we feel confident. We're supposed to feel confident. But most of us, we find that we don't really feel confident. We actually feel very anxious and insecure when we're approaching God this way. So what are we supposed to, uh, what are we looking at? Well, there are three points, and I forget them off the top of my head, but they're in my outline, so we should be okay. So, <laughs> so what is supposed to be the source of our confidence when we, we have in God's acceptance? And the first point is the freedom of losing worthless obstacles. Because all the things that we think are going to make me right with God, they're just worthless obstacles. So Paul writes this in verses 1 to 2. He, talks, he says, I write these things to you to keep you safe. Watch out for those dogs, evil people, mutilators of the flesh, people who claimed to be Christians but were twisting the gospel and leading others astray, saying you had to be circumcised. Now, Paul wasn't the only one saying this kind of thing. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, this is before Paul's writing to the Philippians, apparently, he said, Peter asked this question at the Council of Jerusalem. He says, why do you test God by putting on the necks of God's people a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? the law, making us right with God. He says, no, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved as is everyone who believes. And so what Paul is doing is he, he gives us his resume. And he says, from, from the people I come from, from my people, from my you know, sphere of influence, these are all the things that they would say, you got it, Paul, you have it. If anybody has it and you're right with God by what you do, then Paul, you've done it. 
And so he gives his resume. But as he's going through, what he's saying is something completely opposite. He's not saying you need these things to be right with God. He's saying these things will never make you right with God. They didn't make me right with God. So he goes through a list, you know, rituals. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, there's a ritual. There's some sort of religion. There's a, there's a ceremony I can do. Um, it's good. <laughs> we're good. We're good. He's got a better voice than I do. We should just play that. Wow. One right here. He's got a nice, mellow one. Well, you know what we need in here? We need a teenager. Can some teenager come help us? With our, can somebody... It's okay. What I tell, I tell I just, a young person, no, it's good. Way to go, way to go. So, no, no, that was like Jesus healing the leper. Just coming here, touching. It was good. It was good. So, okay, we'll come back to that. We'll, we'll bring up that illustration later. Okay, so, um, so ritual, um, circumcision particularly in this context. But Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, men always like the religion of ceremonies because it does not need the giving up of their favorite sins. Right, give me something I can do, and I don't really have to change. But you, you give me five things to do in a ceremony, boom, 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 I've got it. I've done it. It doesn't change anything. People group, your race, I'm Hebrew of Hebrews. He says your race, your culture, your nationality, that doesn't do anything. Your family, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? It doesn't matter if your grandfather was a preacher or anything else. What matters is, are you in Christ? Traditional morality, he says, as to the law, I was a, I was a Pharisee. Affiliations are your party distinctions. I'm a Pharisee, and we have that going on in our culture right now with party distinctions. And I'm not that group, I'm this group. We look to those things. Commitment level, sincerity, right? Paul is a persecutor. You don't get more sincere than that. Sincerely wrong, but he was sincere. Or your performance, keeping rules, keeping law, faultless. And so this is what Paul did as a Jew. And so these were the qualifications that every Jew would have looked at and said, you've got it. That's what I'm aspiring to. That's what all of our young people should aspire to, being who you are and doing the things that you've done, being accepted where you're accepted. And we do this. We may not be Jewish, but we have our own things that we look to. Um, For some of it's our heroes, our heroes. If I'm associated with a group or this organization or this agency, uh, we look to that, but when our heroes fall, we found out that was a very flimsy way of having my own righteousness, right? So I'm connected to this person in my mind. That makes me better. Our understanding, theologically, addictions, those kind of things. I knew plenty of young men when I was in ministry who loved to read theology. And one of the reasons they loved to read theology is because it was covering over a lot of hidden addictions in their lives. Outwardly, I could win these debates, and it made me feel justified about what was going on in the, clo- the closeness of my own closet. Um, our reputation. We love to be asked to serve. We love to be asked to those kind of things, but we also love the recognition that we get from it. And sometimes when we don't get the recognition, we get really upset at other people for not giving us what we think we deserve, the recognition or our position. I'm more right than others. Now, listen, this is a heart attitude. This is not something, something this is in everybody. And so if you have this heart attitude as I'm more right, my position is more right than those people in that position, that's a heart attitude. And so eventually what happens is you start looking to the people that are in your own group And you start saying, well, now let's draw another line because I'm not like you either. And so pretty soon you start fracturing yourself, not just from a big group over there with my big group, but you cut yourself off in smaller and smaller groups and you fracture yourself off from them. 
Right, this is what he's talking about. And, and the whole context here is on building unity and community within the group. So he's saying, you've got to get rid of all of these things that you think these are the lines that you're drawing in the sand. And he's saying, you've got to get rid of those. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's what unites us. And that's where he's going with all of this. And, and Paul is telling us that the best things about him were the worst things. They were the most dangerous things. They were the most vile things about him. The things that everybody else would look at and say, that's so great. He said it wasn't so great in hindsight. Uh, his sin, and he's saying his sin didn't come between him and God. It was his religion. It was his morals that were coming between him and God. Uh, he became arrogant and condemning and divisive. Um, and if you're not that, because you're confident and better than other people, it will make you anxious. It will make you feel defeated. I'll give you an example. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I got to know a lady um, here in Florida, not here in the villages, and uh, she was a member of a church, and she, was, she wanted to get together and talk to, with me because she was absolutely petrified that though she was a Christian, she was going to be going to hell. And the reason she was afraid and anxious about this is because she said, I'm not doing enough. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing about it. It was during COVID, so she's isolated from everybody. So she's not able to go out and do things. She's isolated from people, so she's not able to go and perform. And because she's not able to perform, she's not able to get affirmation from other people about how good she is as a person. And so she is not looking to Jesus as her confidence and say, hey, here's a global pandemic. I'm isolated from other people. This is God's doing, but I'm still right with Jesus because it's Jesus' work and not mine. She was using other people and serving them as a transaction to feel like she was somehow more right with God when she did that. Does that make sense? Do you see that? Uh, so Paul says our good works and not our bad works, not our sins, but our best works, our resumes, our accolades, our outward displays of righteousness. These are the things that keep us from, yes, our sins keep us from God, but those are also different types of sins. And this is why Paul called people here saying that, you know, that you're demanding people to be circumcised. He called them dogs and evildoers and mutilators. And Paul was saying this because he had been one. He'd been one. He knew what that was like. He knew what was going on in their hearts. And so I'm going to go attack all the bad people because I'm one of the good people, right? I'm one of the good ones. I'm on fire for God and I'm zealous and I'm going to go and tell them, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, give them what's what, put them in jail, maybe even put them to death if they don't listen. So, confidence in our good works produces all kinds of obstacles. This is from a guy named Robert Cunningham. I thought this was a very striking quote. Um, he's talking about Jesus. He said, get behind me, Satan, Jesus said. Not to a woman caught in adultery, not to a sleazy, thieving tax collector, not to a weeping prostitute yet to walk away from her trade, not to a woman still holding, still hiding in the complex web of her broken sexual relationships and shame, not to a doubting disciple, but to a leader in his own community clinging so tightly to visions of greatness, power, and control that he couldn't embrace the way of the cross. Right? So a leader, somebody who kind of seems to be walking, and Paul says that the whole idea of all these lists that he gives and the lists that we carry, he says they're rubbish. And now the word there that Paul uses is a colloquial term having more to do with your sewer system than your trash can. Uh, so we're not going to go into that. So it's not just trashy, but it's, 
it's dung, it's disgusting. He's saying, I want to flush all these things away. I want to get rid of it. I want, I want to be free of those things. And that's what the gospel has done. It has made me free of those things. So we come into the gospel here and the rest of gaining God's gift. And in verses 7 to 9 is where we see you know, Paul's summary of the gospel and the grace of God. So in Philippians 3, 7 to 9, we read, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's talking about righteousness. What is righteousness exactly? Uh, I read a quote this week, and I thought it was helpful. It takes a little unpacking, though. It says, uh, righteousness is a validating performance record which makes you utterly acceptable in every context. Another, did y'all follow that? <laughs> Righteousness is a validating performance record. So it's a record that validates you as a human being. You're, you're, you're right, you're good. Which makes you utterly acceptable in every context. So to be righteous means that you've done everything right in every context. You've done the right things, you've felt the right things, you've related to people the right way. You've done everything right, period. And so because of that, there are no no doors closed to you. Everything's open. Everything's available. You are welcomed and accepted everywhere. So, and you know this is true, that if there's a club you've been involved with and you break the club laws, you're kicked out. Um, You know that if you're, you know, you've committed crimes in the United States, there are certain things in which you're kicked. You can never participate in those things ever again. It just happens that way. But he's saying what righteousness is, is you've done everything right in every area. So there's no area where you've done wrong, and there's no place where you have to face any negative consequences. The, the world is open to you. Now, here's the problem. is In Romans 3, Paul says none of us has that. <laughs> none of us is righteous, not a single one of us. No matter how much we want to think we're righteous, we're, we're just not. We're not. And we can hide it, but sometimes it slips out. So... I had a friend a couple of years ago. That's my, that's, I say a couple of years ago. Rebecca's like, that's probably 20 years ago. It's probably 20 years ago. I have a friend, when uh, his kids were little, he was driving them to their Christian school one day. And uh, <laughs> so he, he drives through, he pulls out, and then he did what all the rest of us would do. There's a kind of a numbskull person who makes a boneheaded thing in traffic, right? And so he just starts going off on this person you blankety blank and you blank blank and all the school word all those words he learned in middle school that he but you know he's not supposed to, he was saying all these things and he was just letting this person have it and you know and the person's probably looking in the mirror in the rearview mirror and veins are popping and they can see him just, ah! and then finally he heard a little voice from the back seat say daddy are you okay <laughs> and at this point my friend pulled over sobbing just sobbing because you know you that's not the thing you want your kids to see about you but here it was all of his yucky stuff his anger his pride his arrogance his rage all just manifested we can hide it but then it comes out behind the wheel and that's what we need to talk i'm just kidding um so none of us has it but paul tells us some very important truths about righteousness here verse 9 He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, he's saying, 
this is apart from my, whether I obey the law or don't obey the law. This is, this is independent of that. This doesn't come to me from my obedience to the law. It comes to me through another means. And then he tells us what the means is in verse 9. It's the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. In other words, God is the source of it, and it's a gift that he gives us, and we receive it by believing and trusting what he's saying about it. I believe you. I believe that you are who you say you are and that you're doing what you say you're going to do. I trust you. And then in verse 9, he also tells us it's the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. It comes through Jesus. We're declared righteous. That's what the word justified means. It means you, whether you're guilty or innocent or standing before the judge, and the judge pronounces a declaration upon you, guilty or not guilty, justified or condemned. And so he's saying we're justified, declared righteous in God's sight, not because of things that are true of us, but things that are true of Jesus. Jesus has accomplished this for us, and it's given to us, and we receive it by faith. So the burden of your salvation is not yours to carry. Jesus bled and lost it all so that we could regain it all by gaining him, so that we could be restored to God. So God gives us the full and permanent state of righteousness, that status, when we come to faith in Jesus. Now, I did college ministry for years, so I like visual illustration, so I'm going to use a visual illustration, and I need Terry and Vic to come up. Did Vic, are you, are you here? I was thinking maybe he ran out, but he did. So does, since Vic was here first, he gets to play Jesus in our uh, illustration here, and Terry gets to, get, Terry, get, do we need to move more into the cam? I'm, I'm thinking about your little camera thing. We're good. You're going to do it? You got, okay. So, so uh, Vic gets to play Jesus, and uh, Jesus is righteous. We went, this, went through the wash and it made it splotchy. Sorry. <laughs> so righteous. So Jesus is righteous, which means he did everything right. From the moment of conception to the moment of his death, Jesus did everything right. He's righteous in that way. So slip that on so we can see the word. We washed it, so it's clean. You're All good. Right. Okay. <laughs> and because of that, Jesus is also declared righteous. Jesus in his character has done it. He's, he's right in every way. So God justifies him and says, Jesus is this, and he announces it to the cosmos. So put that on over at the top. What? Wait a second. Wait till I get the parka on you. <laughs> okay, Terry, who represents us, the sinner, the person who has not done everything righteous, is sinful. And you can tell it's bad because it's a dark shirt. Okay, so... He's sinful, so I want you to slip that on. And it's inside out, too. So. It is. It is. <laughs> That's a big one. There you go. Got it? So he's sinful. That's who he is in and of himself. And as a result, he's condemned. So put that on. Over the top. Do yeah. I have to? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you will be again in a minute. Hold on. Okay, so you can see that underneath, this is the state of his, his, this is the condition he's in. He's sinful. He's fallen. He's broken. And this represents the justice of God, the declaration of God, the, the verdict that's passed on his soul. Over here, Vic represents Jesus. 
And underneath, he is righteous, right? He's, He's done everything right. There's no sin in him whatsoever. And he is justified. Now, what happened at the cross was this. Now, I want you to take off just the outer shirt. And I want you to take off just the outer shirt. Thumbnail boom here. No, you see what's in there. We, we, we got to put them right, <laughs> right side. Okay, so what, <laughs> you guys, I fold your laundry, I do everything for you. Flip that on. So on the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So, but I want you to notice that when Jesus was on the cross, Vic in our representation here, he's still righteous. He didn't have sin. He didn't have the brokenness. He wasn't dying for his sin. Our condemnation was placed upon him. And then, at the same time, I want you to put this on, at the moment that we come to believe, there you go, made it easy, there you go. At the moment that we come to believe, We are forgiven in all the righteousness of Jesus is ours. We are justified. Now, I want you to notice here, he's still underneath a sin. It's part of his condition. Yeah, he has a new heart. He's made alive in Christ, all of these things, but there's still sin here. But permanently, he's been given the righteousness of Jesus. He is justified in God's sight because of Jesus. Now, because it's like 200 degrees in here, y'all can take those off. So it's good. Thank you. Thank y'all. That'd be great. So Jesus is the basis for our acceptance, forgiveness of past sins. He's also the basis for our acceptance before God in the future, at the judgment. And he is the basis of our acceptance before God every second of every day in our whole lives. When you fail, you know whose righteousness God is looking to at that point? The righteousness of Jesus on your behalf. Not you, not yours. Right? And because of that, you're not in danger of the fire of hell. Your father loves you. He may discipline you. He may teach you. He may bring you out of that. But it's because he loves you, not because he's getting ready to smite you and destroy you. And in the same, same way, when you do something that's good, he doesn't love you more. He can't love you more. He loves you with the same affection and love with which he loves Jesus at the moment uh, when, you're, when you're doing your greatest thing. He doesn't love you more. He loves you the same in Christ permanently. This is what J.I. Packer said. He said, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's our sin. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And that's Jesus. Michael Reeves said it this way. He said, the righteous person is not the person who has no sin, but the sinner on whom God has freely pronounced the verdict righteous. That's what makes us righteous is God has pronounced the verdict in Christ. So saving grace is the overflow of God's loving, charitable, and generous nature to meet the deepest needs of and get good gifts to undeserving, ungrateful, unrighteous, and unloving sinners through Jesus Christ. Grace is God's favor to the guilty. It's It's free. It has nothing to do with your future potential. It has nothing to do with your past failings. It has nothing to do with your uh, your, uh, present sincerity in any way it has to do with god's grace he is that generous to us you don't have to deserve it or pay it back it's given as a gift 
But here's the kind of interesting thing about it. As you begin to look at the passage, uh, we see that what Paul is saying is Jesus doesn't need to be won over to us. We need to be won over to Jesus. That's what faith is. That winning over is what we call faith. Faith is not merely cognitive where it's like, well, this is what I think is true. It's personal. Not meaning that it's individualistic. This is my personal faith, but meaning it's interpersonal. It's between me and Jesus. I believe Jesus, and that changes everything for him, for us. And so as you look to this passage in verse 1, this is our third point, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. In verse 1 and 2, he talks about rejoicing from prison. Why is he rejoicing from prison? It's not his circumstances. He has a relationship with Jesus that transcends his circumstances. He lost, he's in jail. He said, I lost everything because of Jesus. I lost my family. I lost my friends. I lost my peers. I lost all of these things. I finally have lost my freedom. But it was all rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. So Michael Reeves again, he said, Christians are people, Christians are people who have given up all claims to both badness and our goodness and instead have gotten Jesus. We've gotten him. Chapter 3, verse 8 of Philippians. I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And he talks in verse 3 about not giving glory to Jesus, but saying, I glory in Jesus. In other words, saying, the glory of me the best thing about me to hold before the world is not that former resume. It's that I have Jesus. I know Jesus and Jesus loves me and Jesus died for my sins. And what he's communicating to us is that Jesus is not simply the means to get to heaven when you die. Heaven is the place where you get to be with Jesus when you die. Jesus isn't the means to the end. He is the end himself. I get to be with him that's heaven. That's fantastic. And no other religion can give what Jesus offered because Jesus is offering himself in the gospel. And that's fantastic. Listen to this again from Michael Reeves. He says, this could sound unnecessarily tribal or snobbish to say Christians have, you know, you have to be, have Jesus. This could sound unnecessarily tribal or snobbish, but for this, there is no one else who offers what he offers. Some religions offer paradise or nirvana. He shares, us, he shares with us himself, his very sonship, his life before the Father. If the gospel was about sharing with us something other than himself, then Jesus' words would sound clicky. Why couldn't others be purveyors of that thing? But since the blessing he brings is himself and his own life, it is plain nonsense to think of him as just one religious option, much the same as others. Others can offer God, or salvation, but only when someone offers Jesus do they offer the same thing as the gospel. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, knowing him. Have you thought, like I was, I had to, I was thinking about this, why would Paul say this this week? Well, Jesus was king. And when I hear the word king, I picture a guy sitting on the throne saying, bring me another piece of mutton, servant. You know, that's, that's the idea. I don't know why they're British, I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> What kind of king is Jesus? He fed 5,000 people with his, out of his power. He raised the dead. He healed the sick he, and injured. He gave the words of life. He defeated Satan. He performed miracles without any kind of marketing. There wasn't just photo ops for Jesus. 
He was doing it because people were in need. Don't you want that kind of king? And he's saying, you have that kind of king. He's a brother. He's our elder brother. When I was going off to seminary, my older brother came in, and he's, he was a guy, a few words, but he came in and just kind of like popped a check right in my clothes basket before I got in the car, and it was a pretty hefty check. And he just kind of walked off because he was my brother. He loved me. He wanted to send me off with some uh, substantial finances. He wanted to care for me. He's our brother. He's our best friend. Jesus said, greater love has known than this than, than that he give up his life for his friend. Who's he talking about? Himself. He's saying, I have, there's no greater love than what I'm showing by giving myself for you. He's a husband. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's a mentor in John 6. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. And so you look over and over and over again, and the more you find out about Jesus, the more he transforms you, and the more you want of him, and you say, that's why I'm glad of righteousness. Not simply so I can go to heaven, but because heaven is where Jesus is, and I get to be with him. Compared to Jesus, the great minds of past and present are as kindergartners who can't tie their shoes. Compared to Jesus, the most altruistic and benevolent people of past and present are like stingy misers hoarding trinkets. Compared to Jesus, the bravest and most powerful of men are as mice cowering in a corner. And compared to Jesus, the beautiful, wealthy, grand people are as, like, are as beggars compared to Jesus. Jesus is the one that we want. And because of that, as we go through the passage, Paul says a little bit later that he was willing to go through sufferings for Jesus. I gave up everything for Jesus. And I found that I gained even more. What's that mean to give up everything for Jesus? Well, not just your righteousness, not just your resume. It's more than that. Uh, I uh, got a phone call from a friend, and we'll close with this, uh, last Saturday evening. And uh, some of you may have remembered me talking about a friend, uh, a college student who was a Muslim. And uh, I went with him when he told his parents, or told his dad specifically, that he wanted to be a follower of Christ. And it did not go well in that conversation. And part of the reason it did not go well in that conversation is that is a very different culture than ours. You know, in our, in our culture, we think, I'm, I need to be supportive for my kids. No matter what decision they're making, I want to support them as much as I can. I want to be happy for them, happy with them. But it's not that way for a young man whose family is from Pakistan and it's kind of Southeast Asia, and it is a, an honor-shame culture. And you don't make your own decisions in that. You follow whatever it is that your family has told you to do. I, I do what my parents' expectations are. That's part of being a good uh, son. Well, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't going to. So he sat with uh, Dad, and I listened as Dad gave him every reason he could think of for this kid not to become a Christian. He said, I'll give you two years. Just practice Islam, don't have anything to do with Christianity, don't go to church, don't do any of that for two years, and you can make your decision. That was 2014. And so my friend, in, uh, over those two years, he followed his dad's advice, wanted to do what his dad was telling him because he wanted to be a good son, and he thought this would be good. But inwardly, he's just, it's tearing him up because he can see who Jesus is. He can see the claims of the gospel. He knows that scripture is true. He knows that salvation is found in no one else. And he sees the glory and beauty of Jesus and he wants to be with Jesus. So it's tearing him up on the inside. So today in South Carolina, this young man is being baptized. How fantastic. 
He's gone through this really hard thing of having to weigh and measure and ask the question, is Jesus far surpassing of everything else? Not just my righteousness, but my cultural righteousness. These relationships, how's it gonna affect all of these, all of these things? And so what he's realized is that Jesus is worth it all. Listen again to what Paul says, because Paul was in a similar boat. He lost everything. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And that's the question, right? The question is not what what are you doing for Jesus today? The question is, what has Jesus done for you? And how are you bringing that into your life in joy and thanksgiving every single day? That's where we start. That's where Christianity starts, is what Jesus has done and how we respond. Let me pray for us. You are good. There's no doubt. You are good. You're good to sinners. You're good to your people. You're good to all those who profess faith in Christ, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you. I pray for our friends in the room who are exploring this, maybe seeking and trying to understand more about Christianity. I pray, Lord, that you would answer their questions, that they would see that there's nothing they have done that it can keep, you, keep them from you, that, make, that disqualifies them from your forgiveness. Their sins aren't worse than anybody else in this room. And for those in this room who are trusting in their own uh, works, I pray, Lord, that you would free them in the gospel. They would find those things as rubbish and find something far better in Christ. Would you bless us and would you be with us? And would you receive this last song of praise as an act of worship of our hearts and joy and gladness? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.